Sue Konzelman, and I'm a reader in management at Birkbeck University of London. I'm Mark Favag Davis, research associate at Birkbeck College, University of London. Simon Deakin, director of the CBR. Our book is called Labour Finance and Inequality, the Insecurity Cycle in British Public Policy, and it's with Simon Deakin, Mark Favag Davies, and Frank Wilkinson. Well, Sue, thank you very much indeed for talking to the CBR podcast series today at the inaugural Social Science and Law Interdisciplinary Conference. Why did you write your book now? Oh, well, when the 2008 financial crisis arrived and suddenly everyone was questioning globalized financial capitalism and everyone was referring back to Keynes and talking about how you know, this was you know, surely a crisis that would cause some sort of shift and then nothing happened and nothing happened for years. And so we thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting to look back through history when we actually did see a major shift in a conventional wisdom or a paradigm? Um, so the shift from laissez-faire to Keynesianism after the Second World War, and then the shift to pre-Keynesian ideas during the 70s and 80s, which have since been called neoliberalism, and thinking that a lot of things seem to be happening that would provide the context for another shift in the conventional wisdom and the policies that it informs. But then nothing seemed to change. And so we were really interested in looking at all kinds of things about these previous shifts to see whether we could see patterns of um, occurrences that happened at the same time that happened to bring that about. And so that was really the motivation to say, why have we not yet seen a change in the conventional wisdom and the policy paradigm that it informs? And what would we need to see in order to feel as though change is ahead? And so we developed the concept of the insecurity cycle as a way of making sense of, you know, how are people feeling when something's going on? When do they get to the point where they put pressure on the state to intervene? And it's usually in the response to some degree of insecurity they're feeling. And that insecurity, whether it's because of poverty and equality, most of it has to do with distributional issues. Now, I know we're going to talk to Professor Simon Deakin, who, as you said, is a co-author, about Brexit in a minute. But just one more thing with you. The 2008 crisis seemed to have been a catalyst for change. You talked about momentum, uh, Jeremy Corbyn's labour shifting the Labour movement to the left, and that perhaps we might soon see another shift in public policy, that that 2018 financial crisis might be the root of something that's quite dynamic in society, where people say they've had enough and they want to change. We were supposed to deliver the book a year earlier than we did, but then the Jeremy Corbyn phenomenon came onto the radar, and then the decision to hold a, a referendum on European Union membership came up. So lots of things happened sort of in 2015, 16, 17 that made us go to the publisher and say, we really need at least a year just to see what's going to happen with these new developments. What we talk about in the book that I found particularly interesting is Actually, what we're seeing now in terms of shifts in political interests, so we're seeing the engagement with politics on the part of lots of groups within society who previously hadn't been engaged, mainly because there hasn't been sort of a polarization of choice 
in politics for, well, as long as I can remember, until Jeremy Corbyn. And I don't think it's about Jeremy Corbyn. I think it's about the vision of politics and society and economics that he's articulating. It really appeals and resonates with a lot of people. And it's drawing them into politics or into engagement with political processes because they see some choice that hasn't existed for many, many years. And lots of other things are going on right now. There's many reports that have come out, evidence-based reports by numerous charities, but also the Bank of England, the Office of National Statistics, the IMF, um, PEG, of which you're a member. The yeah, the Progressive Economics Group. Well, the Progressive Economics Group is a, a forum for policy innovation, which is just soliciting ideas about policy, policy aimed at a social democratic form of society, not, you know, it's, they're, they're not looking for ideas that are far right. They're looking for ideas that are aimed at a society that is much more along the lines of social democratic values. But what PEG is doing is getting ideas from whoever wants to contribute them. And people can put together a policy brief and as long as it follows the guidelines that are set out on the PEG website, it can be posted. And hopefully, because the Labor Party shadow cabinet is taking it very seriously, but the conservatives equally could. There are policy ideas that are out there in the public domain for anyone to make use of. So the idea is that maybe some of these innovative ideas about policy will find their way into actual policy should any of the political parties want to take them up. But there's lots of things, to go back to these evidence-based reports, there are reports that not only document the extent and nature of social deprivation in the United Kingdom, but also internationally. It's just that there's a lot in the United Kingdom that's relevant for our book. But in addition to that, they're documenting the systemic nature of these problems. So instead of blaming the poor people for being poor, blaming the victims, which is a lot of what's been going on, these reports, much like the studies that were done by Roundtrees and Booth in the 19th century, are demonstrating that it's systemic. There's something about the system that's causing these problems. And because of that, then they're also documenting what might be done in terms of macroeconomic policy or social policy in order to address them. And so those sorts of developments have the potential for some positive contribution to a shift in what we see in terms of policy paradigms and the outcomes associated with it. We are not free from crisis yet. There are a number of reports by the Bank of England that suggest that the preconditions for another financial crisis may well be building within our economy at the moment, particularly with regard to PCP car loans and also property loans. Your take on the corporate culture's role in this insecurity cycle, are we sort of pitting the corporate culture, the banks against the people, the governments against the people? People may argue that neoliberalism may be a fault line, that it hasn't looked after people's welfare enough, and that we may now be moving from one type of public policy to another. But what's given rise to that move, in your view? I think perhaps I should probably here first confess to being a historian primarily rather than an economist or a legal specialist. And that means that I'm particularly interested in the way that people behave, what motivates them and what they actually end up doing about it. In terms of blame, I think it's possibly 
too strong a word. It's almost like blaming a fox for chasing rabbits in the case of capitalism. It is within the nature of those sorts of organizations and the people who run them to behave in the way that they do. And part of the reason for looking at the insecurity cycle is, of course, based on history. We've looked at the way that these businesses have emerged, what created them, and the general lack of rules governing what they could and couldn't do. Inevitably, those people who didn't do so well out of this process started to think, how can we improve our lot? I mean, looking at the conditions within the 19th century for most people, they were pretty dreadful. If you read the book, you'll find all kinds of things, uh, up to and including the dreaded fossy jaw, uh, which resulted in some forms of match factory workers actually having to have their jaw bones removed. And the uh, imagination boggles what that did to the rest of their lives. But these conditions also produced things like trade unions, organization of people. And whilst the free market side of the cycle eventually decided that they had got to get rid of these trade unions, and indeed did so after the 1979 general election, it was never really going to be the end of the matter. The, the rise of momentum has produced, if you like, a different kind of organization in that trade unions are based largely on people who work and have a shared culture in that regard. Momentum is based largely on people who have a shared sort of situation and as a result, a similar sort of response to it. So you're starting to see the same thing happening again, but for slightly different reasons and on a different basis. Simon, we've just heard from Sue and Mark about the insecurity cycle. You have written in the book about Brexit. Do you think that Brexit was a symptom of what was wrong in the system? And is it necessarily going to lead to economic advantage in trade or the reverse, as Remainers argue? Well, I think that Brexit wouldn't have happened had there not been some particular features of, of the British system, which, as Sue and Mark have been explaining, have tended to exaggerate this, this movement between one type of policy and another type of policy. So in Britain, the policy in security cycle is quite intense, more intense than it is, I think, in other industrial societies and countries with codified embedded constitutions, embedded social rights. So Brexit, in a way, is a consequence of Britain's rather archaic constitution and the fact that the referendum happened in the way that it did and at that point signifies I think that we'd reached a particular point in the insecurity cycle where the highly financialized neoliberal so-called neoliberal form of capitalism which Britain has experienced since 1979 has run its course. I think that that's the background to the Brexit vote, a fundamental failure of that particular growth model. That failure of that growth model, do you think it is now going to lead to change, Simon? So I think that the Brexit referendum is a catalyst for rejection of neoliberalism. I think it speeded up the process of, in a sense, uh, forcing a change. Both political parties in the 2017 general election, in their manifestos, repudiated many aspects of the neoliberal economic policy model. And I think that although there was some backtracking on that more recently from the, the current government, which re reasserted its belief in free markets after the election, I think now it's too late to wind the clock back on this. So now the field is open for, for policy alternatives to neoliberalism, and the, the referendum catalyzed that. Now, actual Brexit, actual departure of the UK from the EU, will further catalyze change, in particular if it's chaotic. And you think 
it will be chaotic. It will be a hard Brexit simply because you won't be able to, to square the circle of what the EU wants and what the UK government under Theresa May wants. So it's not possible to predict what will happen. But at the moment, it seems to me that there are two possibilities. One is a hardened, rather chaotic Brexit where the UK leaves in March 2019 and there's no agreement on a transition let alone a further free trade agreement, or what people have been calling a, a very soft Brexit in name only. And either way, I think even a so-called Brexit in name only, where the UK continues to align itself as far as it can with EU regulations in order to maintain free trade, even that is politically and institutionally highly problematic as a way forward and will, I think, put the whole political process under huge pressure. So we will see, I think, again, the rejection of existing modes of governance and regulation. A lot's up for grabs if Brexit goes ahead. Now, if, if by some very strange turn of events there isn't even a Brexit, I think that also won't end the argument about how to govern the UK. All right, and just finally, because I know the conference has to reconvene, but Sue said in her presentation, she came up with a lovely analogy that we could be at a Reagan-Thatcher moment, that must be 45 years ago, when you had a shift in public policy. Is Sue right? We're at a Reagan-Thatcher moment. Yes, I, I, I think Sue's right. Um, there's a feeling that we're going through a period now, a little bit like the mid-1970s, when the country faced a series of political and economic crises. And the, the way that crisis in the end was resolved was for a fundamental change of, of, of the paradigm of governance for the country. And, and it's not easy to, to live through these periods because they tend to produce enormous division within society. And Brexit, the referendum, has, has done that. It's sharpened divisions and raised the rhetor rhetorical and political temperature enormously in ways which are potentially very damaging to the fabric of the, of the democratic political system. So one must, in the short run, I think, hope that the, the, the fundamental democratic institutions and the rule of law institutions that we enjoy can withstand this extraordinary turbulence that we're going through. But probably this type of period, when, when there is a, a fundamental economic and political crisis, in the end is resolved one way or the other with a policy shift. So I don't think we can go back to neoliberalism. We must hope that the alternative that we end up with is not authoritarian politics, but is a renewal of democratic politics in some form. And that's what your book's about. That's exactly what the book is about. Mark, do you agree with Simon? It's hard to find much to disagree with. The insecurity cycle is not a particularly data-driven concept. It's about how people respond to conditions around them, which means that it's imprecise. All we can really say at this point is that certainly the preconditions for a major change are there. It doesn't necessarily mean that we will get that change when we will get a change or what sort of change it might be. But I think we have to be optimistic. And does history have any lessons to teach us as a historian? I think that history tells us that humans, perhaps regrettably, perhaps not, tend to respond to similar situations in similar ways throughout history, really. If you look at ancient Rome, for example, you will see early forms of socialism with Tiberius and Gaius Gracchus. And we're looking at 2,000 years ago there. They ultimately failed, but they did try. Here, I think we are going to see continued pressure until we get change. Or as H.A.P. Taylor said, in times of plenty, we forget our troubles in adversity. We have nothing else to think about. Sue, I'm going to put you on the spot now. Just justify your Reagan-Thatcher analogy with the present time, that change is coming and that perhaps change is overdue. 
I think where we got that idea was I talked earlier about this range of evidence-based reports that have come out. One of them was by the IMF, which is arguably the strongest proponent of neoliberalism and has been for as long as neoliberalism has been an, an ism. Just last year, I believe, they came out with a, an article, a research report called Neoliberalism Oversold with a question mark. And that report, what it argued, was that there's a lot of evidence that neoliberalism has caused much worsening conditions in terms of inequality and all kinds of problems, and it's had damaging effects on macroeconomic performance. That report and the admission by the IMF of the problems with neoliberalism, having promoted it for so many years and forced it onto so many countries, particularly in Latin America and other parts of the world, in combination with the working together of the Momentum organization, which supports the vision of politics and economics that Jeremy Corbyn has articulated, working with the organization in America called Our Revolution, who supports the kind of vision that Bernie Saunders has been articulating. Those things coming together form an international alliance that is similar to what we saw in terms of the alliance between Reagan and Thatcher. It's a nascent one at the moment, but it could develop into something that would cause the potential for a similar sort of shift, but in the opposite direction. Well, just finally and briefly, I've got three authors in the room of labour finance and inequality, the insecurity cycle in British public policy. Was it difficult to decide on your conclusion that a shift in policy was about to come? I don't think it was. We had a long meeting, Simon, Mark, and I, where we talked about what should the concluding chapter look like. And we wanted to end it on a more positive and optimistic level because we have talked a lot about all of the problems that have been experienced in terms of poverty and equality, food bank use. There's just so much that's been going on. And when we started looking at some of the changes that have been going on in a more positive direction as a consequence of some of these reports that are making the case that the problems that people are experiencing are systemic rather than the fault of the people who are experiencing them. When we looked at all the evidence, we found that there was a lot that we could assemble that suggested that things may be moving towards a more equitable position than they've been moving prior to this. But that's my view. I don't know if Simon and Mark might have a different right. one. Well, I'll let Mark then Simon have a say. I think for me the most crucial thing is that if it weren't for huge change that had already happened within the insecurity cycle, none of us here would have ever had a vote with which to do anything. And it's easy to forget how many really significant and in many respects perhaps even unhoped for changes have already happened. So with that history of change and the fact that things like this can and indeed do happen, you simply cannot rule out a change. And as we put into our conclusions, all the preconditions appear to exist for a change of some sort. I, th I think we have to at least try to be optimistic about what is coming, but at the same time realising the stakes are very high and in some ways it's not just about a change of policy, it's about whether our basic democratic institutions can withstand a shock of some severity which might be both economic and political which is almost certainly coming and has begun and that's as I say not simply the Brexit referendum and the Brexit process, Brexit's a catalyst which is 
essentially connected to the failure of a particular model of economic governance which operated for 30 or 40 years and had a lot of support in its time but has just run its course. So that I think is, is the issue. Can the UK hold together can even the country hold together, but can it hold together at an institutional level? I think that's the issue. Now, one possible response of, of academics in these circumstances is just to stay within their own disciplinary boundaries and specialisms and to offer discrete and specific insights as far as they can on the way the economy or the polity are, are evolving. I think we have a greater responsibility than that, and that's, that's the, the, the spirit behind the book, that interdisciplinary collaboration is important. But also academics need to engage right now with these extremely pressing issues. And academics are researchers, but also citizens themselves. And if they don't understand that they have a stake in the democratic process, if they stay silent at a time like this, then I think they are not fulfilling their, their fundamental mission. And I think it's important to see the book in that light. And Sue, just finally, you're hoping that people read the book and see that there are other ways of delivering public policy that will create a fairer system. Yeah, of course we're hoping people will read the book. But also we think that, I mean, it's, it's a very interesting book in the sense of going back to the beginning of the Industrial Revolution and tracing major patterns and major shifts from that point to the present, and including the shifts that we're documenting that are going on right now that we think have the potential for change. But we, we also think it's, a, it's an interesting book, it's got a good message, and people will enjoy reading it. Okay, well, Sue, Mark, and Simon, thank you very much indeed for talking to the CBR podcast series today about your new book, Labour, Finance and Inequality, The Insecurity Cycle in British Public Policy. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Bonnie.